I'm deeply grateful for that wonderful introduction, Matthew. Thank you so much for the invitation to, to be here at Preston Hollow, one of my favorite places. I'm delighted to be here on this first Sunday of Advent, and I bring you greetings from Austin Presbyterian Theological Seminary. A reading from the Gospel of Matthew. Now the birth of Jesus, the Messiah, took place in this way. When his mother, Mary, had been engaged to Joseph, but before they lived together, she was found to be with child from the Holy Spirit. Her husband, Joseph, being a righteous man and unwilling to expose her to public disgrace, planned to dismiss her quietly. But just when he had resolved to do this, an angel of the Lord appeared to him in a dream and said, Joseph, son of David, do not be afraid to take Mary as your wife, for the child conceived in her is from the Holy Spirit. She will bear a son, and you are to name him Jesus, for he will save his people from their sins. All this took place to fulfill what had been spoken by the Lord through the prophet. Look, the virgin shall conceive and bear a son, and they shall name him Emmanuel, which means God is with us. When Joseph awoke from sleep, he did as the angel of the Lord commanded him. He took her as his wife, but had no marital relations with her until she had borne a son, and he named him Jesus. The word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. A friend of mine told me a story a while back while I was still a parish pastor in Atlanta about her daughter Megan. It was a few days before Christmas and Megan, who was four, was drawing a picture of the nativity scene. When she completed her work, she explained each character to her mother. There were shepherds and sheep, there were wise men and uh, camels, there was a stable with cows and a cat and a dog and donkeys, and of course, there was a manger. Finally, in her narration, she mentioned the central focus of the picture, and frankly, of any nativity scene, Mary and the baby. My friend noticed, though, that something was missing. What about Joseph, she asked innocently. She assumed, of course, that Megan would remember and sketch him into the picture, too, but with an exasperated tone of voice. Megan replied decisively, Who needs Joseph anyhow? <laughs> well, God only knows what Megan was thinking way back then. She's probably a professor of theology somewhere now. <laughs> but her question sums up, I think, the church's deep and centuries-long ambivalence about Joseph. I know something about this ambivalence. I've been preaching Advent sermons for close to 40 years, and this is only the second time in my ministry to preach a sermon about Joseph. I have plumbed Matthew's gospel across those years, focusing upon Mary or the angel or dreams or any number of other clever angles I've taken on this text in the past, and this is only the second time I have focused upon the one who is self-evidently the main character in this particular text, Joseph. But in rummaging around in the vast closet in which the Christian church for more than 20 centuries has stored its Christmas trappings, I found hardly a thing on Joseph. 
look through the hymnals of the Presbyterian Church and try to find one hymn in which Joseph plays anything other than a bit part. <laughs> There's plenty of stuff about Mary, gentle Mary laid her child lowly in a manger, or what child is this who laid to rest on Mary's lap is sleeping, or born in the night, Mary's child born in a borrowed room, or Isaiah, twas foretold it, the rose I have in mind, with Mary we behold it, the virgin mother kind. Then there is the contemporary Scottish hymn writer John Bell, who has written a relatively recent hymn in which, in the British way, he refers to Joseph as the redundant groom. <laughs> redundant in the way that the Brits often describe to be fired. Everywhere you look, it's Mary this, it's Mary that, and what is Joseph? Potted plant? <laughs> now I know what some of you are thinking. You're thinking, okay, Wardlaw, you give birth in a snowy barn, and then we'll write a hymn about you. <laughs> but seriously, what about Joseph? Joseph is the Rodney Dangerfield of the Christmas story. <laughs> of the church, either from complete slander or from utter disregard, one who doesn't get any respect because he's Joseph. Little Megan, who needs Joseph anyhow? Why are we so down on Joseph? It could be, in part at least, that we have conditioned ourselves to think of him as such a reluctant character. It seems that all of the other characters in this story have something big to do. Shepherds and wise men and choirs of angels get in to make the big entrances onto the scene. And by comparison, Joseph seems so awkward and befuddled. He's good at leading a donkey to Bethlehem, maybe, but basically he doesn't seem that essential. Maybe it's me, but in our house in Austin, where we've just finished putting up the tree and setting out the decorations, there's a crash on a sideboard in our foyer, the figures of which were painted decades ago by my wife Kay's artistic grandmother. And even there, Joseph just looks out of place. Everybody else has something important to do. Mary is tending to the baby in the manger. Shepherds are gazing with wonder. Wise men are en route toward the scene. But Joseph? He just looks out of place. He's bending stiffly down on one knee, trying hard to be sensitive. <laughs> but as I've walked back and forth past that scene this past week, I've imagined from that look on his face that he would rather be anywhere else than there. There's not a comfortable place for him in the story. He's just not an easy fit. Give him some tools and say, Joseph, go plug those leaks so the place won't be so drafty. <laughs> Give him the car keys and say, Joseph, go to the 7-Eleven and buy some diapers and some Similac. <laughs> but as things stand with us, and certainly with Megan, there's just not much for Joseph to do. We're down on Joseph. We're down on him because he appears so tepid so benignly compromising in the way he deals with Mary's dilemma. When her pregnancy is revealed, Matthew says that he resolved to divorce her quietly. Or as it is put in the King James Version, Joseph, not willing to make her a public example, 
was minded to put her away privily. Put her away for heaven's sake. It seems so unheroic. What we want is a Joseph who will be a sort of Leonardo DiCaprio who will thumb his nose at the social conventions and whisk Mary away to a place where they can be who they are, they are meant to be without abandon. So we don't forgive Joseph for his apparent reluctance to play his part in the story with more conviction. Which means I believe that we have hardly begun to understand this man and the way in which the whole story of Christmas and all that happens thereafter hinges upon him. Joseph and Mary, whom we encounter here in the first chapter of Matthew's Gospel, are betrothed, but not living together. Betrothal in their setting meant a stronger thing that engagement does in ours. Engagement in our culture is often an opportunity for two adults to have a trial run before things get nailed down by marriage. But betrothal in ancient Palestine was a far more serious and intentional thing. It meant that a woman was bound to a man through formal words of consent, and it was often arranged when the woman was quite still, still quite young, 12 or 13 even. And at this point, even though she did not yet live with the man, she was already viewed by society, the woman, as the man's wife. More often than not, a good bit of time elapsed, a year at least, often many years, before the woman betrothed to the man moved out of her family's house and into the home and the bed of her husband. And just here, somewhere between betrothal and marriage, is where Mary and Joseph are. Not yet married, presumably, not yet sexually intimate as well. They are nonetheless bound to each other, and Mary is already all but Joseph's wife. Joseph, says Matthew, is a righteous man, which means that he is utterly devoted to keeping the commandments of God, the Torah. With all that is in him, he strives diligently on every day to live in harmony with the will of God and follow to the letter all of the provisions of God's law. He's sort of a, an eagle scout, scout on steroids, which is where the problems start. For when Mary is found to be pregnant and Joseph knows he's not the father, he knows from the scout handbook of religious righteousness just what he has to do. Torah says that when a woman has been unfaithful to her betrothed, he must cast her aside, perhaps even put her to death. But that's a problem for Joseph. The problem is that he's both righteous and compassionate. Because he's compassionate, he'll release Mary from the bounds of betrothal quietly. But because he's righteous, he will not ignore the law. This is where Joseph is before that holy night that gave him his new identity. On that night, there came an angel in a dream to reveal to him that what looks like a moral outrage is in fact a prophetic intervention. Do not be afraid to take Mary as your wife, says the angel, for in the purposefulness of God, this righteous eagle scout shall be a bridge between the old and the new. As the adoptive father of Jesus, Joseph shall be a genealogical bridge, thus bequeathing to Jesus the family name of the house of David. 
and just as importantly as a bridge between all of the religious heritage that has been and the evolving unknown thing that God is doing in the world now, Joseph will break through the confines of the old law in order to respond obediently to God's new act in this mysterious one whose name will be Jesus. What an amazing thing that this man who has always seen righteousness as a matter of coloring inside the lines, now on that holy night, accepts the promise of that angel and takes Mary as his wife and thus becomes the prototype here at the beginning of Matthew's gospel for true righteousness and faithful discipleship. Hard as it is for us to accept, Joseph is the keystone in the bridge that is built by the Christmas story. And because he will be a link between old and new, between past and present, everything in the drama of Jesus Christ that will unfold from this moment hinges upon this one man and his righteous compassion. My good friend Tom Law, who is a lifelong teacher of preaching and a splendid preacher himself, has described Joseph this way, as a model for the Christian life. He learns that being truly righteous does not mean looking up a rule in a book and then doing the right thing. It means wrestling with the complexities of a problem, listening for the voice of God, and then doing God's thing. Being righteous, says Tom Long, is never simply being pure and good in the abstract sense, because Genuine righteousness is always joining with God to do God's work in the world. And in this sense, and pay attention to me here, it may well be that Joseph is a metaphor for the church. Like Joseph, we are forever seeing the inbreaking of the Spirit, even when we can't always understand it or interpret it. And like Joseph, we spend a lot of time fretting about what happens when we don't follow the rules or what happens when divine chaos gets out of the cage and is on the loose. And like Joseph, we have to try to figure out how to follow that spirit, that divine chaos, without losing our grip on the non-negotiable things that make us who we are. Part of the struggle with Advent, after all, and part of the struggle which congregations have when so much is up for grabs when it comes to being the church, is figuring out what we have to hold on to and what we have to let go of in the wild ride toward the kingdom to come. I read a while back this wonderful book of essays by a surgeon who's now dead named Richard Seltzer. He was not just a surgeon, but also a poet. The book was a series of essays about his own craft, surgery, and one of the essays about surgery turned around a young couple. Seltzer was in the wife's hospital room one evening after her surgery earlier that day. I stand by the bed, he wrote, where she lies, her face post-operative, her mouth twisted in palsy, clownish. A, a tiny twig of the facial nerve, the one to the muscles of her mouth, has been severed. She will be thus 
from now on. To remove the tumor in her cheek, I had to cut the nerve. Her young husband is in the room. He stands on the opposite side of the bed, and together they seem to dwell in the evening lamplight, isolated from me, private. Who are they, I ask myself, he and this wry mouth I have made, who gaze at and touch each other so generously, greedily. The young woman speaks, will my mouth always be like this, she asks. Yes, I say, it will. It's because the nerve was cut. She nods and is silent. But the young man smiles. I like it, he says. I think it's kind of cute. All at once, I know who he is. I understand and I lower my gaze. One is not bold in an encounter with a god. Unmindful, he bends to kiss her crooked mouth, and I am so close that I can see how he twists his own lips to accommodate to hers, to show her that their kiss still works. That is a picture righteousness. A picture of how God relates to us, how God has related to us from the very beginning. God is forever coming to us. Whatever about us is unfinished and tepid and is forever bending down to complete whatever is incomplete so that from generation to generation the kiss still works. And so it is in Advent as we wait for the one who is to come and save us from ourselves. The one who is to come will lead us toward the whole offering of ourselves to God. The one who is to come will beckon us from our own worst errors and bad decisions and toward the people God would have us be. A people whose righteousness exceeds that of the Pharisees. Whose righteousness, when all is said and done, Approaches that of Joseph. In the name of God, Creator, Christ, and Holy Spirit. <laughs>